Good evening. So those of you who came for the March retreat have um, been here two days. It may feel like two weeks. Um, And those of you who've been here for a little over a month, it probably feels like about that. So this evening, I'd like to speak about mindfulness of the body. And it's really a privilege to be able to speak here tonight. Um, I've been uh, a retreatant for the February-March retreat somewhere between uh, four and eight weeks, I think eight of the last ten years. So I really love uh, this time and the quiet and the time of year, really, the, often the rains and the um, coming of spring. And I love the quality of uh, being able to notice those buds, sometimes almost hour by hour, the ones that are by our walking paths, you know, and it's very precious. I'd like to invite you, in the context of exploring mindfulness of the body, actually, as you listen to the talk, to keep some connection with your body. It's actually a wonderful way that mindfulness of the body can come into our lives so that we actually have, when we're listening, when we're speaking, when we're interacting, we can have both an inner attention grounded in the body and an outer attention. So I'll invite some experimentation. Concretely, it might mean simply to have a light awareness of your body, a light awareness of your breath or the contact with the cushion. And I'll do the same. That's my practice. I once was working with John and John gave me some guidance for giving talks. He said, you know, do your preparation, if that's appropriate, and then keep your attention in your belly and your heart and let your thoughts self-organize. So I have some notes here, but I'll let my thoughts self-organize, hopefully in a fruitful way. (laughs) First, a few words really about the aim of our practice. And I think it's important to reflect. I think this is very appropriate whether we've been here two days or a month and two days. That our aim in practice, our most fundamental aim, is not to be peaceful, not to have peaceful states, not to be concentrated, not to be calm. If you think you signed up for the wrong retreat, you can (laughs) talk to the managers about another retreat. But it's really, um, I think it's helpful to express things somewhat starkly like that. 
there's a uh, pretty famous uh, Zen story of, um, actually I think comes from a koan, from a teaching story, in which a, um, a student asked his teacher, who was near the end of his life, what is the teaching of an entire lifetime? And you might think that you might get an answer about emptiness or the interpenetration of all with many and the metaphysical oneness that comes when we tap into the resplendent radiance of our hearts unfettered <laughs> or something like that. Right? And he, his answer, what is the teaching of an entire lifetime was an appropriate response. And that, that has stayed with me when I, when I, uh, since when I first heard that. And uh, I often like to think about the core of our practice in a way which really follows from that teaching in a very simple way in which mindfulness plays this crucial role that in a way mindfulness lets us know what's happening. We see what's happening maybe inwardly and outwardly. And then moment by moment, on the basis of our best wisdom and compassion, we intend to respond in a certain way. And we enact our intention through as skillful action as we can. So we have mindfulness, and then we have some kind of hopefully wise and compassionate intention and action comes out of it. And that's all we do, moment by moment. So all we're really looking for moment by moment, and it's actually kind of reassuring, because it means we don't have to be at a particular place. We just have to respond appropriately moment by moment. And, that, and yet mindfulness plays this uh, crucial role. So mindfulness of the body is typically situated within this very famous uh, teaching discourse called the Four Foundations of Mindfulness, which probably most of you have uh, studied and practiced in some detail. And you may remember the um, famous passage in the Satipatthana Sutta, the discourse on the foundations of mindfulness, where the Buddha speaks of this power of mindfulness and he says, this is the direct path for the purification of beings, for the surmounting of sorrow and lamentation, for the disappearance of suffering or dukkha, for the attainment of the true way. And then he goes on to say, what are these four foundations of mindfulness? The first is mindfulness of the body that I'll focus on tonight. And the others that we'll explore in the coming weeks, and that those of you who've been on retreat um, in February have explored. The second, as probably most of you know, is mindfulness of what's usually called feeling tone or vedana, the sense of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. 
The third foundation is mindfulness or a kind of con contemplating of um, thoughts and emotions. And the fourth I like to think of as the mindfulness of the larger patterns of experience. The first three give us a sense of the constituents of experience. In the fourth, we start to look at some of the broader patterns through uh, various frameworks, particularly the four truths and the frameworks of the seven factors of awakening and so forth. So I want to explore mindfulness of the body really in three main ways. First, I want to talk about why, why mindfulness of the body is important. And secondly, I want to explore the actual practices, the initial practices that we're doing related to mindfulness of the body. And then thirdly, step back a little bit and look at how mindfulness of the body works really, how it transforms us. So first, why mindfulness of the body is important. And as I reflected on this, um, it became more important to me after I had reflected than before. So it's actually, I think, a very, very powerful, central, maybe even the most central part of our practice, especially as we bring it out to the entirety of our lives. So for the Buddha, the starting point was mindfulness of the body. And mindfulness of the body was, in many ways, a core practice throughout the whole development of insight and wisdom and compassion. And in a way, we could say that his practice and practice in general uh, ends with mindfulness of the body. So it's there in the beginning, middle, and end. In many ways, it's the um, most fundamental and simplest way to cut through our repetitive thoughts, to come back to mindfulness of the body. It also is an incredible source of joy and even mystery, which I'll talk about more later, that the mindfulness of the body, the resting, in awareness of the body opens us up to bliss, opens us up to joy, opens us up to calm, opens us up to wonders of experience. The Buddha had a, a, another core text called Mindfulness of the Body, and he said, when we have mindfulness of the body, Mara cannot find a support. Mara being the personification of greed, hatred, and delusion. When we have mindfulness of the body, Mara cannot find a support. The tendencies towards greed, hatred, and delusion have much less support. There's a wonderful passage that I think is down, down at the Gratitude Hut from Achan Moon, uh, a great Thai teacher of the, um, especially the first half of the 20th century. And for those of you who don't know Achan, is spelled A-J-A-H-N, and it just means teacher. And Achan Moon was a teacher of Achan Cha, who was a teacher of Jack Kornfield and Achan Sumedho and many other teachers. And this is what Achan Moon said about the importance 
of mindfulness of the body. He said, in all your investigation, never allow the body to desert the mind for anywhere else. In your investigation, never allow the body to desert the mind for anywhere else. The great disciple of the Buddha, Ananda, once said, mindfulness of the body is my best friend. Very cute. Ananda has a lot of these very cute comments and, that we find in the text. And uh, The Buddha, in that, in that text on mindfulness of the body, says that mindfulness of the body is the basis for all further accomplishments. And there is a, a passage where he talks about the 10 benefits of mindfulness of the body. And I thought I'd just um, share some of these with you. This is what he said. Practitioners, when mindfulness of the body has been repeatedly practiced, developed, cultivated, used as a vehicle, used as a basis, established, consolidated, and well undertaken, these 10 benefits may be expected. He didn't say how, how long, <laughs> but he said, they may be expected, what ten, what 10? One becomes a conqueror of discontent and delight, and discontent does not conquer oneself. One abides overcoming discontent whenever it arises. One becomes a conqueror of fear and dread, and fear and dread do not conquer oneself. One abides overcoming fear and dread whenever they arise. One bears cold and heat, hunger and thirst, contact with gadflies, mosquitoes, wind, the sun, and creeping things. <laughs> One endures ill-spoken, unwelcome words and arisen bodily feelings that are painful, racking, sharp, piercing, disagreeable, distressing, and menacing to life. One obtains at will, without trouble or difficulty, the four jhanas that constitute the higher mind and provide a pleasant abiding here and now. And then he goes on to say how ultimately they also open up to a number of different um, deep powers of the mind. And so he clearly thought that mindfulness of the body was very, very central. And there, there's a way in which he thought that mindfulness of the body leads all the way to the fullest liberation. And many of you know that the Buddha himself, on the night of his enlightenment, was practicing mindfulness of breathing, the same practice we're doing. And he later said, in this fathom-long body is the world, the origin of the world, the cessation of the world, and the path leading to the cessation. There's this way that the body becomes a place, a locus where we awaken. And in fact, in later Buddhist traditions, in, in the tantric uh, traditions, for example, of Tibet, it's actually the body that gets enlightened, not us. Rumi said once, the body is a screen to partly shield and partly reveal the light that is blazing inside your presence. And so in the tradition, mindfulness of the body is very, very central. It's also, I think, very crucial for us 
in this culture, it's interesting that for the Buddha, he starts with mindfulness of the body and it's very central. I think it's even more important perhaps in our culture, which is so mental. And some of you know the um, famous response by uh, the Thai teacher, Chan Buddha Dasa, who's a 20th century teacher. He was once asked, uh, what do you think of Western civilization? Uh, I, when, I, when I hear that question, I always think of, the same question was asked of Gandhi. Gandhi's answer, what do you think of Western civilization? He, he answered, it would be a good idea. And, and Buddha Dasa's response, kind of parallel in a way, uh, Buddha Dasa's response was, what do you think of Western civilization or what, is, what, do you, what do you find in Western civilization? He says, lost in thought. Lost in thought. And so for us, when we practice with the body, it's a, this fundamental way in a sense, to break through the kind of ordinary trance of our culture. You know, and in, in a way, it's even getting worse with virtual reality. You know, I find it always ironic that there is this upsurge of interest in the body and awareness of the body and body practices at the same time that we're going virtual, which sort of has a lot of our existence sitting in front of a computer or you know, even these days sitting inside of a minute or sitting in front of a miniaturized computer with that gets our neck in all sorts of strange shapes and so forth. So we have, we have this strong cultural background, especially the last few centuries of the emphasis on the mental. Often there's a devaluation of the body. Historically, that's often been the case for several thousand years, if not five or 10,000 years, that the body connected with the earth is not as significant as the mind. And I think we, we often experience that. And so I, I often think of mindfulness of the body as actually a revolutionary act. I think that really being grounded in our bodies is the counterpart of healing the rift with the earth body. So it's not something small, I think, when we attend to our breath, when we attend to our bodies. It may feel small, but I think it's actually very, very powerful and significant, and it is the counterpart. We can't, I think we can't really connect with the earth well unless we connect with our own bodies. And that's what we're doing. That's what the initial practice, the initial the training is. And for many of us, it's not so easy, especially the first few days. You know, we're often um, caught in thought, lost in thought, taken away by the, what, what uh, uh, Mary Grace called the prison of our stories. Many of us have really um, grown up not being very connected with our bodies. There's that famous passage in uh, James Joyce in um, The Dubliners. There's a short story called A Painful Case. And the um, protagonist of that story is Mr. Duffy. And Mr. Duffy, it said, lived at a little distance from his body, 
regarding his own acts with a doubtful side glance. He lived at a little distance from his body. And for how many of us is that true? Has that been true? I know that for myself that there's a lot of truth there. That um, I think partly growing up as a a man in this culture, but also very much the times um, I was, uh, I think, not very aware of my body for a long time, even though I was very physical. You know, I was very involved with athletics. I was actually a competitive swimmer for 10 years, you know, and very involved and at a, at a fairly high level. But I wasn't aware. I mean, it probably made it possible to get through workouts, not to be aware, because I would just be, <laughs> whatever, thinking when it was going to end or whatever. I don't know. But um, uh, I wasn't so aware. And I, I remember having this very powerful sort of epiphany when I was a student and I was living for a year in Germany. And I was living on this very interesting farm. It was like a biodynamic farm connected with the teachings of Rudolf Steiner. And I was actually going, I was just living there because they matched me up with a family. I was actually studying German and going. I had to walk about two miles a day in to study German for like six hours or eight hours a day. And I remember walking one day and it was a beautiful walk along this uh, river on these high kind of cliffs above this beautiful river. And at a certain moment, I realized I am thinking all the time. I am not aware of my body. I never really heard of meditation at that point. But I, w- I realized that I was thinking all the time. And I said, I am nothing but consciousness on a pole. It wasn't, it wasn't uh, actually a good feeling. <laughs> and maybe some of you have had something like that experience, you know. Or, um, and it really led me to want to be more embodied. And of course, when I first started meditation, it was revelatory. And that was maybe one of the main revelations that I would, that I could actually, um, you know, in the phrase that some people use, come back to my senses come back to my senses and be present with bodily experience. And my first retreat, I remember, was a complete revelation because I, would, I, I became concentrated enough so there was very little thinking. And I got very involved with retreats and um, sometimes would experience uh, very few thoughts, you know, I'm sure as many of you experienced, for, for weeks on end. You know, and it was that's different from consciousness on a pole. Very different experience. And just that, that opening, and I was also studying Tai Chi and, and uh, really feeling that embodiment. But I think as we all know, there, there are layers and then there are layers. And even though I had that experience, to really um, stabilize that more in daily life is another matter. Right? You can have, it, have these retreat experiences, but it's harder to have that sense of embodiment. So there were later years to try to help bring that sense of embodiment into, into daily life. And mindfulness of the body, completely central. I think it's very, very crucial for us actually to have mindfulness in our lives in this culture. And so the practice we do here 
is a training in so many ways. You know, it's, um, it's a training for when we leave here, it's a training to take us more deeply into our experience. It's also, you know, as we come back to our bodies, it's a kind of a healing. You know, just as I think to come back to the earth body is a kind of a healing. And we can open to our bodies and sometimes we find what's there is painful or there are wounds from the past. And when we open to the body, we open to that. And we develop the skills and and often we have uh, helpful guidance that can help us work with that. But there's a deep way in which mindfulness of the body can be tremendously healing, can really bring us to that greater wholeness. I, I personally think, that again, that this coming back to the body, especially when we really connect the body in the long run with the heart and the mind, I think, I personally think that's an evolutionary edge of our species right now, to actually ground in the body and connect it to the mind and the heart. I think it's also, as I mentioned, I think it's central to really responding both personally and collectively to the demands of our times, the challenges of our times. So that may be the bigger picture of why mindfulness of the body is important, but how do we actually do it? How do we actually work with mindfulness of the body? In the text, in this Foundations of Mindfulness, the very first section is on mindfulness of the body and it takes us into mindfulness of of breathing. And really the practices I want to talk about here are really the ones that we've opened up to. open up to other aspects of mindfulness of the body as the days go on. And those of you who've been here um, have done that. And most of us have already worked with mindfulness of the body in a variety of ways. But here we're especially now just staying with mindfulness of breathing and the mindfulness in the walking meditation and then the mindfulness of the body in our activities during the day, in our work meditation, in our informal time. So I want to talk about those activities. So in the text, the Buddha uh, asked the question, how does a practitioner abide contemplating the body? He says, here a practitioner gone to the forest or to the root of a tree or to an empty hut And for our purposes, this is an empty hut, this hall. Uh, He says, having gone to uh, the forest, the root of a tree or an empty hut, sits down, having folded the legs crosswise, sets the body erect and establishes mindfulness in front. Ever mindful, one breathes in. Ever mindful, one breathes out. Those are the initial instructions that are given. And they really point to a few aspects of our of our practice, that we're really to do the training, we need, in a sense, to go to a secluded place, a place where we can have that uh, quiet and support to really explore. And so that that sense of um, the forest or the root of a tree or the hut is really to point towards the importance of some degree of removal from the the, uh, ordinary stimuli, which we've done. We have those conditions. 
And then he says, we, we set the body erect, which really points to the value of posture and the value of having that quality, as we're working with mindfulness of breathing, of having our back be straight and as much as possible really connected with the ground, whether we're in, in a chair or sitting on a cushion. And again, it's very helpful just to come back to that awareness of posture. You know, posture is emphasized probably more in the Zen tradition and in some, <clears throat> some aspects of the Tibetan tradition where, where there's also very much an emphasis on how, as we I think have in the uh, Qigong work, of how uh, body posture actually influences the movement of energy in the body. And so having that erect body really facilitates the settling and the development of calm and concentration and insight. So we find that level of seclusion, we work with posture. And then he says we establish uh, mindfulness in front of us. You know, we can interpret that in different ways and some people interpret it to mean that we have mindfulness uh, around the nose or the lip or that the front of the face. And other people uh, focus on other places. I think we generally suggest to cultivate mindfulness of breathing where we can follow it most easily. That's our most general uh, practice suggestion. And, you know, actually in, um, in other texts, I think, in other uh, texts on mindfulness, there's, a, there's more of an emphasis on being in the present moment. That when, when we talk about establishing mindfulness in front of us, it means really to be there in the present moment. And in fact, to, in some of the, um, I think some of the Chinese versions of the text, there's not, there's the, not only the sense of being in the present moment and establishing mindfulness by, in a sense, being very vigilant towards our thinking, but there's also a sense of connecting with our motivation and especially the motivation to, to help ourselves and others. So this is another meaning of how we start, of how we establish mindfulness in front. It can be really to connect with our intention, our motivation. You know, in that text it says, one does not occupy one's mind with self-affliction <clears throat> or the afflictions of others or the afflictions of both. One sets one's mind on one's own welfare, also on the welfare of others, on the welfare of both, and even on the welfare of the whole world. So we can often, it's often a very skillful way to work with mindfulness of breathing, mindfulness of the body, is really to connect with our motivation, with our intention. You know, sometimes we, you know, in the interviews, we report sometimes that things are somewhat vague or dreamlike or we just stay in a state that's not so energized and we can help that very much by coming back to motivation, coming back to our intention. Why am I doing this and what am I doing? What am I doing in this 45-minute period? It's, I think it's a very skillful way to begin a sitting, to remember what we're doing and to connect in that way. So we work with mindfulness of the breathing and we just really keep coming back. We keep staying with the breathing. When our mind wanders, we come back. We can use some of the techniques that have been mentioned such as uh, labeling, 
uh, where we go to sometimes note thinking, as most of you know. We can count the breath as uh, I believe Mary Grace suggested. We can be um, just really work in a very simple way to keep bringing our mind back. And so we also have uh, also mentioned in the four foundations of mindfulness is mindfulness of the body in different activities. So we're invited to be mindful of the body in whatever posture we're in. We can be mindful of the, not just the sitting posture, mindful of the body when we're walking, when we're, when we're um, standing, when we're lying down. And the invitation is to really, in our walking meditation, keep coming back to the body. In a sense, I think like, I believe like Heather said, we really keep coming back to the body all day long. You know, we keep coming back to the breathing or we keep coming back to the experience of walking, sensations of our contact with the earth, and we keep doing that. And we can also bring that mindfulness of the body in our work. And again, it can be very helpful at the beginning of your work meditation to set an intention. And maybe to set an intention to stay with mindfulness of the body. Maybe to just stay with the body for five seconds or a minute before you go into your work meditation or to come back to the body periodically. So that really becomes itself a practice. It really becomes a practice where we, where we keep coming back to the body. No matter what's happening, keep coming back to the body. You know, you're mopping the floor at 8.30 at night, as I know some of you do. And instead of the stories of, here I am with my broom and it's really Ginger Rogers or, you know, I'm dancing with my partner or whatever. And just come back to the body and if that story helps give a little bit of energy, okay for a little while, but not, not the whole 8.30 mopping period. And so can, uh, can really take that to be, okay, my body's tired now. I'm mopping, it's 8.30 and I, I'm tired, just to come back to that, just to be, to be there with that. And so I think, uh, as most of you know, what really tends to accelerate our practice is, we, and we, is when we can have continuity, when we can really stay with the body continually in this, in this sense. And so you might really look at where is my edge with mindfulness of the body? Where do I tend to go on automatic pilot? Where do I tend to become more unconscious? Am I mindful of the body when I'm walking out of the hall? What about when I'm brushing my teeth or in my room or when I'm eating? We can use all of those activities to cultivate mindfulness of the body so in a way the whole day is this stream and if you can focus on that continuity it's a tremendous way to deepen practice. It helps uh, so much uh, to um, keep coming back, keep coming back over and over again. So I want to go to the last area that I wanted to explore, which is really what happens when we cultivate mindfulness of the body? Well, how, does, how does that transformation occur? And I want to give uh, sort of an expanded version uh, that really uh, takes off some from what Heather presented, the, the SLOW acronym, 
uh, what was it, uh, settle, steady, and so forth, uh, love, opening, and, and wonder. And I was thinking of developing my own acronym, except I think I have seven. And we were talking after Heather's talk about what would it be like if every evening in the talk each of us came up with a new acronym. <laughs> and you might be, you know, waiting each evening, what is the acronym that's going to serve us tonight? And anyway, I, I looked at my seven factors that I want to talk about, and the, the acronym I came up with was B-D-D-O-N-I-L. <laughs> Which actually, if you look at it carefully, it actually says B. Donnell. <laughs> but I, I thought that was a little maybe self-centered to, <laughs> to present to the whole group. So, so if that's useful for you, you can, you can use that. And we'll always have a connection. <laughs> so, <laughs> So, so mindfulness of the body, how does it really work? You know, the, the first is, you know, again, the, the obvious, that it, it helps us to be present. We come back to the present moment, and especially, again, we, we move from that continual uh, spending time thinking about the past and future. We, we settle we sink into experience. We, we really cultivate more that sense of being, of being in the present and really moving away from our agendas, the, the kind of strategies that Heather was talking about. And as we come more into the body, the thinking diminishes and we, we move more towards that continuity of, of awareness of the body. Um, as we're more present like that, as I think we all know from past retreats, the senses get sharper and things become wondrous. You know, the colors get brighter, the food um, tastes wonderful, whatever it is, when, when the mind is quiet and present. And, and, you know, I can remember my first retreats being really enchanted by cold broccoli, you know, or in the early days of retreats, um, the evening meals um, were, were Spartan. And I don't know, the, the, the cooks had wonderful uh, inspiration at that time, but I don't know how much they studied nutrition. And so our, our evening meals were a cup of tea, I think usually an apple and about maybe six raisins and six peanuts. <laughs> but I remember uh, the delight of taking 45 minutes for that meal and eating the peanuts and raisins really, really slowly with those kind of, uh, that kind of bright perception that can come when, we, when we're in the present moment. The poet William Blake talks about opening the doors of perception, which is what happens when we return to the body. So we also, uh, secondly, develop concentration and calm and um, stability. Mindfulness of the body, body gives us that way of coming to rest, coming to just be with the breathing or with the body. Uh, we really tune in to 
the breath, uh, the body gets relaxed more, you know, typically, um, at least in a general way. We are mindful of the body. We, the, the, the Buddha once said, the body formations become calm as we work with mindfulness of breathing. We collect ourselves and we become really, and this is really the basis for being able to see clearly. Because mindfulness is ultimately um, a process that opens up to insight and wisdom. And it's that calming and stilling of the mind that really permits us to see more deeply, to see really with fresh eyes, with new eyes. We also cultivate thirdly this, this sense of more direct awareness, which is really crucial. It's this way of um, being able really to connect with the object of our attention, the breath, the body, the hearing, the taste of the food. We do learn to move out of the commentary. We learn to see the commentary, we learn to see the stories, and we just come back and this tremendous fruit of our practice of being able really to distinguish between more direct experience and the commentaries and the stories. And it's not that uh, commentaries and stories are bad. You know, sometimes we need those stories, we need those narratives, but it's very, very crucial to know when they're happening and not be caught in them and to use narratives if we're using them consciously know that we're doing them and also occasionally ask about their truth value. Because of course we get caught in all sorts of stories which um, shamelessly have little contact with any real evidence. Or we just go from one, one small experience and a big story develops. And so we develop this ability to connect with the object and to keep the attention on the object, to really sustain that attention. And kind of interesting aspect of mindfulness is that we, in a sense, have to use an aspect of memory in order to be present. It's quite interesting and actually one of the meanings, one of the cognates of the word uh, sati, the Pali word, has to do with memory. And this often puzzles uh, people who read the text. But I think that the deeper meaning is this quality of remembering or this factor of remembering to be present. That as we're practicing initially, we have to remember to be present. We have to have the intention to be present. That's why working with intention is so important. We're continually remembering to be present. At a certain point, then mindfulness takes on its own momentum. And maybe we don't have to remember so much. And indeed, I think that as we go deeper in our practice, we sometimes let go of that quality of remembering or that quality of intending to connect with an object. And we more um, rest in a sometimes uh, a kind of awareness that doesn't focus on one object. Or at times we focus even more broadly on awareness as such, and we sort of remove some of the initial uh, training aspects of mindfulness. But initially, we have to remember to be present. And I love the paradox. 
we have to refer to the past in some way in order to refer to the present or in order to connect with the present, if that makes some sense. It's that sense of how can I keep on being present? Another quality of our mindfulness is that it's non-reactive, that we can be present with all sorts of phenomena increasingly without either trying to push away what's unpleasant or grab hold of what's pleasant. That we develop this kind of balance of mind, equanimity, that can increasingly be with everything and simply be mindful. That can accept what's happening. And it's that that deeper sense of being non-reactive that I was really pointing to when I talked about appropriate response. That we can learn to be with whatever's happening and see what the appropriate response is. Coming out of the ability to be with the difficult, with the unpleasant without pushing it away, and with the pleasant without grabbing hold of it. This is really getting at the heart of of how mindfulness starts to be liberating. We have also that quality of openness with our mindfulness practice that we can really intend to be with the breath But then whatever happens, we notice it and we come back to the breath. Or we can be walking and whatever happens, we notice it and try to respond appropriately. We have to have enough effort to try to be mindful, but we don't try to control our breath or try to control experience. There's there's an aspect of openness that, especially as we go further with the mindfulness, becomes really, really crucial. Ultimately, we find that the mindfulness brings us into insight. Mindfulness has the capacity to penetrate deeply into phenomena. On the basis of that concentration, we can see more deeply. As I mentioned, the Buddha reached full enlightenment according to the tradition using mindfulness of breathing, using awareness of the breath, as the basis for creating deep penetration into the nature of things. And we can be with the body, be with mindfulness of the body in that way. It can help us to see more clearly. It can lead to wisdom. And there's a beautiful phrase in the Thai forest tradition, you know, that they actually bring together the concept of mindfulness and wisdom. And there's a word, satipanya, which means more or less mindfulness wisdom as one word. They're not, dis- they're not uh, disconnected. That mindfulness opens up to that wisdom. And so we can especially, and we'll be working with different ways to do that, but we can, at least initially, we can tune into a few aspects of our experience that bring out more, we might say, the insight and the wisdom qualities. With the breath, we can stay with the breath and keep coming back and notice the breath, but we can also start to open up more deeply 
to the very nature of the breath. We can tune into how the breath is changing. At times we can tune in to the way that the breath is arising, the way the breath is passing, the way the breath is maybe uneven, may have these different qualities. We can tune into the continual change in the breath and really stay with it. And it really becomes a basis for staying with our changing experience over a sustained period, which is one of the fundamental ways in this tradition that we cultivate wisdom. We cultivate insight into impermanence. And we, as we do that, things become less solid. And the breath, which may seem very solid at first, and our bodies, which may seem very solid at first, as we stay with it, as we deepen in concentration, as we can stay more with the breath, the breath starts to be more like a movement, sometimes like a movement of, of uh, stars sparkling or a movement like a river continually changing. And we can stay with that. We can see things arising. We can see things passing. And we relate more to that level of movement and change. We can also see in being with the breath when we tend to want to grab hold of it or push it away. We can see when we've had, maybe we've stayed with the breath for a period of time and we feel very good about that. We can see thoughts developing that try to say, okay, I've done it. I'm really with the breath. You know, that, that was a great sitting. And then the next sitting we, you know, what, arrange now, how did I have my cushion? How was I sitting on the cushion? Or where was, what, um, how was my shawl arranged? Or how was my neck? Or, or whatever. And we try to, in a sense, grab hold of that experience. And we can watch that even with the breath. We can see how we try to grab hold of experience. Or maybe there's an experience of the breath that feels uncomfortable. And we can notice ourselves pushing it away. And we can see uh, how that both of those can lead to suffering. We start to see the origins of suffering. And we can see that when we study the breath, when we study the body, when we study these different ways of being mindful of the body. And the last aspect I wanted to mention is that we, like, uh, like Heather mentioned, the mindfulness of the body can really have a, a warm quality. It can have a quality of care and love. And when we teach the loving kindness retreat, uh, we always have these interesting discussions of, is mindfulness the same as metta? Is metta the same as mindfulness? And we tend to answer, in their mature forms, they are the same. (laughs) That is, mature mindfulness has a lot of care. And mature metta sees a lot. We we see a lot of what's there in our experience. And so we can really invite that quality of warmth, maybe to do even before working with the breath, to really ground ourselves in that quality of kindness and that quality of warmth, you know, for ourselves, for our experience. Um, And as we touch into mindfulness of the body, we do have a sense, as we explore the body, of of its vulnerability, really, in a way that can open up to that kind of compassion. You know, we may open up to the frailty of the body or the vulnerability to 
to pain. And we can hold all of this with compassion and really hold all of it with, with that quality of warmth. And I want to end by really pointing to, in a little more detail, to that quality of wonder that, that Heather talked about. Really, ultimately, the body has the potential to open us very, very deeply towards the, the, um, some of the profound mysteries of our existence. You know, in this fathom-long body is the rising and falling of the world, the Buddha says. That when we stay with the body, we can open, I think, to, to all sorts of wonders. We open to the ordinary wonders. It's said that with every breath, uh, all 206 bones of our body move with every breath. You know, we can open up t- to the mysterious way that our bodies work, you know, to really appreciate that, to appreciate our bodies, the bodies in nature, and really um, have that sense of wonder become, become uh, greater just by being with the, with the body. You know, we can know of some traditions where extraordinary states can develop in meditative and other spiritual practices. You know, in, in the Tibetan tradition, there are practices to develop um, an inner heat and a radiant body. You know, and one of the claims of some Tibetan traditions is that, that um, very realized practitioners develop a, a body of light a rainbow body, you know, that the body can be transformed in very powerful ways. You know, and that's in this tradition as well. It said, luminous, we are luminous beings. And this, perva- this pervades the body at a certain levels. We can really, as we go more deeply into the body and into the wisdom aspects that are opened up, we can also explore some of these mysteries, this mystery of how we are both individual and connected. You know, as we go more deeply in our practice, ordinary concepts cease to work. That's one reason not to take your stories too seriously. <laughs> you know, that as we go deeper, we seem to be both individual and deeply connected, and sometimes not separate from all else. This is from a, a kind of a prose poem by Gary Snyder. He says, we live in a universe, one turn in which it is widely felt all is one, and at the same time, all is many. The extra rooster and I were subject and object until one evening we became one. <laughs> For as one Zen teacher said, nothing is separate, everything is different. So if you notice your logical mind starting to work on that one, um, don't go there. <laughs> so we can open up to those mysteries, like it's really the deeper mysteries of who are we. Mindfulness of the body takes us there as we continue to work with it. It opens up to presence, it opens up to concentration, 
It opens us to wisdom. It opens us to all the unresolved parts of ourselves. It opens us up to greater care, love, compassion. It also opens us up to this deep mystery that, that ultimately I think we're, we're really practicing to embrace that mystery. I think I will end with a, a poem by um, the Indian mystic uh, Kabir, which is really about the mysteries of the body and the glories of practicing with the body. And it's, the, it's called The Guest is Inside. And some of you may know in Sufi tradition, the guest is sometimes spoken of as, this, as the teacher. It's another name really for the, the uh, great spiritual teacher. The guest is inside. The guest is inside you and also inside me. You know the sprout is hidden inside the seed. We are all struggling. None of us has gone far. Let your arrogance go and look around inside. That's our general guidance. Let your arrogance go and look around inside for the next month. The blue sky opens out farther and farther. The daily sense of failure goes away. The damage I have done to myself fades. A million suns come forward with light when I sit firmly in that world. I hear bells ringing that no one has shaken. Inside love, there is more joy than we know of. Rain pours down, although the sky is clear of clouds. There are whole rivers of light. The universe is shot through in all parts by a single sort of love. How hard it is to feel that joy in all our four bodies. Those who hope to be reasonable about it fail. The arrogance of reason has separated us from that love. With the word reason, you already feel miles away. How lucky Kabir is that surrounded by all this joy, he sings inside his own little boat. His poems amount to one soul meeting another. These songs are about forgetting, dying, and loss. They rise above both coming in and going out. Let's just sit for a minute or two. Let your arrogance go 
and look around inside. So thank you so much for your kind attention. And we have next uh, mindfulness of the body. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.